1: Good afternoon and welcome. He became a familiar, reassuring presence throughout the pandemic. As medical officer of health for the region of Peel, Dr. Lawrence Lowe presided over one of the hardest hit areas in the country, working to try to keep residents safe and get them vaccinated amid the rapidly changing science that marked COVID-19. It was a major balancing act with the ravages of the disease on the one hand and the economic necessities of so many essential workers who had to work to put food on the table. Dr. Lowe will be changing jobs soon. Uh, If you have something you'd like to ask or say to him, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And he joins me now, Dr. Lowe. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Libby. So... Uh, first of all, w- what made you decide it was time? I-, I would imagine it's been a pretty exhausting couple of years.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and I'll be honest, I think a lot of this really has to do with the timing of the opportunity with the College of Family Physicians of Canada. Uh, their storied the executive director, Dr. Francine Lemire, who actually was executive director when I uh, started my training, uh, is leaving this summer, and I think the opportunity opened up. I've certainly enjoyed the honor and privilege of working at the region of Peel, uh, and uh, I, I almost certainly uh, would uh, maybe, wouldn't, perhaps would not even be leaving if it weren't for the fact that the, uh, the, the college uh, um, opportunity opened up.
1: I would imagine when when this thing first started, it was like a bolt out of the blue.
2: Absolutely, and and uh, to, to wit, I actually ended up uh, starting along with it. So my first day on the job with the Region of Peel wow. uh, was on the was on the fourteenth of March, twenty twenty. Oh my goodness! Uh, so, we, so we all remember how that uh, that turned out. At least in this role, I've been I've been with Peel before as an associate medical officer of health, but uh, assumed uh, that role then. Um, and honestly, like I said, it has been one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life to serve uh, such a diverse community. And and granted, even with the challenges. Uh, You know, I think uh, we really did come together as a collective, as a community to look out for each other uh, all the way from the early days uh, when spread could lead to severity because we were all susceptible uh, to getting 3.3 million uh, needles into arms. That took the work of, you know, our regional council, our partners, our staff at Peel Public Health and certainly our community uh, coming together to keep each other safe.
1: Well, uh, your start date, I believe that was the day that it was declared a pandemic.
2: Oh. Yes. Uh, well, it was actually March 11th. So it okay. just been a few days before After. and I was looking down that barrel saying, well, I'm not sure what I've gotten myself into, but uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. And, and I really do hope that, uh, that that was something that I was able to do together with the community.
1: And uh, what was do you remember? What was the first thing you did?
2: So I remember the very first thing I did was I came back. Um, I was actually away for a spring break. We traditionally spent a spring break with my in-laws who live in another, uh, province. And so we were, we were out in that province and I, I quickly said, well, I think I need to return to uh, Toronto to go to work, which seems very quaint now. <laughs> you think about just how everything has, has unfolded with virtual work, et cetera. And then, of course, on March sixteenth and seventeenth, we all remember uh, the first uh, issuance of uh, of the closures just to stop the spread to keep people safe.
1: Well, yeah, and I, I remember the the premier saying, "Go and have your spring break." And that turned out to be a big mistake for a lot of people.
2: Well, and, you know I think to the degree that you know the premier, everyone was really trying to make do with the information we had at the time uh the one thing that became very clear in mid march 2020 uh, in mid march 2020 uh, which is different from today's uh, context i should add uh, is that there was a novel virus that was spread in the community um, and that if it continued to spread, it would spread uh, very rapidly uh, out of control and potentially overwhelm our hospitals and healthcare systems as was seen elsewhere in the world. Vaccines changed all that. Um, and I'm really glad that uh, that you know we're not living in those days uh, back in March 2020 anymore where this disease presented a very different risk than, uh, than I think what it does today. Uh,
1: when did you realize that you had a different problem than much of the rest of the city. Given the nature of your population, you had a lot of people who had to go into work every day as essential workers. They couldn't work from home and a lot who weren't going to be paid if they took a sick day. When did that kind of dawn on you and and what were your first responses to deal with that?
2: Well, Libby, I think throughout the pandemic, what has what was very clear uh, in the early phases was that anything that remained open where contact was occurring uh, ultimately remained vulnerable well to spread and then to severity in an unvaccinated era, and so that's why in the very first wave we saw. Uh, you know, long-term care homes get hit particularly hard. And that was the same in Peel as it was uh, elsewhere in in the province. Uh, you know, certainly our teams, uh, together with our long-term care partners, tried their very best to, to address things. But I think where you saw it change in Peel was in the second wave, where there were far more things that were left open than in the first wave. And we suddenly realized that, wow, uh, just given the nature of economic activity in our community, uh, given the nature of being Canada's portal of entry for a lot of essential goods, uh, you know, we have people that are still coming together in contact and uh, contracting the virus. And then subsequent to that, a certain proportion of them uh, ending up in hospital. And, and that really was the story of Peel. It was, uh, you know, mul- ultimately our residents through the second and third waves Uh, you know, did their jobs and, you know, and ultimately some got sick and and some perished so that other people could stay home and stay safe online.
1: Yeah. Um, You took some very tough decisions. What was the toughest one?
2: I think for me, the most difficult decision uh, was to um, to issue the closures around uh, around schools in April uh, 2021. Uh, This was because we were just seeing our vaccine program uh, get caught up, uh, get started, but it wasn't going to get caught up to the virus. Um, And at the time, while we did know that schools were largely safe with all the protective measures that were in place, Uh, the community transmission had gotten to a point where we couldn't uh, 100% assure that anymore. There were just so many exposures and cases being reported in our community. And as a father of young children myself, you know, I think, you know, we always weigh uh, the mental health and the uh, development of children and the need to be in school. But I think we also recall that, you know, if parents get sick, if parents get chronically ill, if parents pass away, that also has an impact on children's mental health. I think that's something a lot of people have forgotten uh, in in the fact that we were able to, uh, to keep so many people safe. Um, so it was a tough decision, uh, but I think we would gotten to that threshold where I said, you know, we, we really need to work with our school partners to ensure that that community is remaining safe at that time back in April and Peel.
1: What about the decision to close the Amazon plant and the decision to close any business that had more than five cases?
2: You know, those are also very uh, significant decisions. And again, they were taken in an extraordinary time where we needed time to get, to, to, we needed to uh, buy ourselves time uh, to get as much vaccine protection out to the, to, to the community as we could, uh, because we knew before we were all largely vaccinated, spread meant the risk of severity, especially in large numbers. So uh, those were equally difficult decisions. Um, but I think it was all part and parcel of working with, uh, you know, a, a very diverse uh, populous community in southern Ontario. And I've been so grateful uh, for the support of, you know, our council, all our partners, and certainly the amazing team that's been behind me uh, that have really, uh, you know, got the data and got all the, all the pieces that we needed to understand why we needed to take those decisions.
1: And, and what's your biggest regret from your entire time? You know, I think overall,
2: I, 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 I wish that I had maybe had the opportunity. Uh, to engage our community partners sooner, uh, and this was especially ahead of the second wave. A second wave. I remember reaching out to many community partners when we were starting to hear from them uh, that they weren't they weren't necessarily being as engaged with us. But we did take turn that into a positive uh, through our mass vaccination program. Like we which community? To- what do you
1: mean, community partners? Like uh, so, what? our
2: community partners meaning uh, people that represent different faith groups, people that represent different ethnic ethnic uh, groups in our community. Uh, you know, really representing the social diverse sociocultural diversity appeal, because we knew, uh, you know, we were starting to see, especially in the second wave, that many of these communities, new Canadians, racialized people, they were bearing the brunt. Of um, of the uh, transmission and the severity in our community, and you know, honestly, in the first wave, as a new medical officer of health uh, with my team, just really trying to trying to figure out what to do, uh, it, being able to engage the community uh, wasn't wasn't really within our capacity then. But it would have made life a lot easier if we'd had the chance to prepare and and, and move forward a bit sooner. Uh, but that said, I'm glad we did when we did because it helped with our vaccine rollout. We were able to have culturally uh, focused clinics to reach out to and reduce barriers uh, and that really made a difference in uh, you know and now UCPL actually has, has some of the highest vaccination rates uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh,
1: what do you say to people who are behaving like it's all over?
2: You know, I think to the extent uh, that we have ways to, uh, uh, you know, reduce the risk, uh, I would encourage people if they have, you know, if they have, you know, their second, their third, their uh, their second vaccine, their their first booster, their second booster, uh, you know, they largely have helped to shift the risk for themselves, and there are ways uh, that they can address things. But you have to remember that it's not necessarily over for many people in our community who may still be vulnerable. For many people in our community who, for whatever reason, haven't yet been vaccinated, Uh, so. So, you know, being aware of that, being aware of your context, knowing when you might need to wear a mask or when you might need to uh, still maintain your distance if someone's a bit more vulnerable. That's the phase of the pandemic that I think that we're starting to move into.
1: Um, Interesting. Uh, I was in a very heated meeting yesterday, and I just want to uh, relay some of the things some of the people were saying. And these are people who are, uh, say, vaccinated. With two shots, so they're saying. Well, in this wave, being vaccinated, even with three or four shots, doesn't prevent you necessarily from getting sick. It prevents you from ending up in the hospital, uh, and it doesn't prevent you from transmitting it. So they're saying, why, why should I care if the person next to me is vac- vaccinated?
2: Well, it's less about caring if the person next to you is vaccinated, but making sure. Uh, that, you know, you yourself are part of this sort of wall of protection, especially for those who are, uh, who are more vulnerable. It's not 100%, but it will help to reduce, uh, you know, the possibility of infection. Um, as, as with anything, there's very few medicines in the world that are 100% or vaccinations, um, but it will help to reduce the risk. And it also particularly helps us as a community to really reduce the risk overall. So uh, as I've been saying throughout the interview, before the before we had widespread vaccine coverage in our community uh, you know susceptibility and potential spread meant that you may have a severe outcome now that most people are vaccinated uh, if you are you know if you're healthy immunocompetent that's how we 've been able to move forward that's how we 've been able to weather uh, even this most recent wave wave six where peel had some of the lowest transmission rates uh, in the province uh, but we 've been able to weather that by virtue of everyone having gotten that protection so it 's not just about the the spread and the, uh, you know anymore. It's about preventing severity, preventing overwhelming our healthcare system, and really allowing us to return to a more normal sense of interaction as well. Uh,
1: what about uh, how long uh, until it wanes? That was another point of discussion that that immunity is is waning now.
2: Absolutely. Well, there are two types of immunity. I, I liken it this way to the idea that if you're hungry uh, and you've never had a hamburger before, uh, you know, you'll eat a hamburger. And hopefully if you enjoy a hamburger, you'll say, wow, that was that was a really great hamburger. Um, you, active immunity is basically, you know, preventing you from potentially getting it later on. So uh, it, it's possible if you have a hamburger for lunch today. You're probably not going to want a hamburger for dinner. Um, and, and that's the idea of active immunity that prevents an infection. But memory immunity, which is what really made this coronavirus, a novel coronavirus, so risky and so severe previously, is something that you don't necessarily lose. Once you've been vaccinated, you know, it could be three months, could be six months from here, and you might get infected, but your body will know how to fight back without necessarily having a severe overreaction like you would with a new virus. So in essence, you may not have a hamburger, you know, for three to six months, but when you actually see one again, you'll recognize what it is, you'll know what it is, you'll be able to enjoy it.
1: Hmm. Um, Dr. Lowe, you are moving to the College of Family Physicians, and there's a crisis. We don't have enough of them, and uh, the ones that we do, it can be very hard just to get in to see your family doctor.
2: Absolutely, and and I think it's an honor to be able to assume this role as well. Uh, You know, the College of Family Physicians of Canada and family physicians and public health as a whole are really part of the same continuum. uh, To the extent that public health, uh, you know, raison d'etre is to basically work and make sure that the community context keeps people healthy and safe, um, keeps people living healthier for longer. Family practices there really as, you know, both supporting preventive efforts that public health uh, will advance, but also providing care for people where those efforts to actually maintain their health have fallen short. And so, uh, you know, I think really to the extent that public health and family medicine continue to work together to pr- you know, protect the health of Canadians, uh, there's an op- opportunity for us to look at how we can improve and, and build on family medicine capacity. We know our family docs are, have been through the ringer as well. We know that they're burnt out, they're overworked, along with all our public health and healthcare staff. And so it really is incumbent upon us in the future to do three things uh, to make sure that we're Uh, better organized, to make sure that we're getting more resources to support a more optimal organization, and then, of course, to reduce healthcare demand as well through healthy public policy. And so those three things need to work together if we're going to start making sure that people have access uh, to family doctors and to the care that they provide.
1: Okay, well, uh, that's a subject that we uh, can take up when you are in your (laughs) new job. Dr. Lawrence Lowe, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Libby. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. We are taking a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the landmark pilot project that is starting in British Columbia, decriminalizing small amounts of illicit drugs, the idea being to prevent a lot of overdose deaths. We'll delve into that when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. (laughs) Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. It's a pilot project that has wide-ranging implications for the rest of the country. British Columbia is becoming the first jurisdiction in North America to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of illegal drugs like fentanyl, MDMA, cocaine, heroin, and meth. It signals a big change in the approach to drugs and addiction treating it like a medical issue as opposed to a criminal one. And with skyrocketing numbers of overdose deaths, the theory is that it will save lives. But where does it leave the fight against organized crime, which is behind the drug trade? And why do some advocates say it doesn't go far enough? And what are your questions or concerns about this? 416 360 0740 toll free one 866 740 and we're going to look at all sides of this. First we have Chief Mike Sayre who is co-chair of the Canadian Association of Chief of Police's Drug Advisory Committee. Chief Serre, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. So what is your reaction to this?
3: Well, I mean, this is, as you know, from the Canadian chief's perspective, uh, in 2020 in July, we did put out a position paper where we did say that it was time uh, and that we were supportive of decriminalization of small amounts of drugs. Um, and we wanted uh, the federal government to explore that. You know, we had seen that, uh, you know, our uh, ability to, to control the demand for drugs um, from a criminal justice system was challenged. But uh, at the same time, we knew that our role was to, you know, remain heavily engaged in those that are trafficking and importing and producing these drugs and putting them on our street. But for the person that are using the drugs, so we felt that there was uh, another uh, option that would be a better pathway for people, and, and that was a health approach.
1: Okay. How does that, I mean, uh, clearly the fact that it was criminalized doesn't stop them from using, but, but what are the other ramifications of having it criminalized in your view?
3: Well, you know, certainly I was uh, fortunate enough to be part of the core planning table for the province, uh, and also a federal, uh, uh, table that that looked at, uh, you know, the criminalization for people who use drugs. And we heard loud and clear over and over again that the stigma um, from criminal records uh, and from the criminalization uh, had a big impact. It had an impact on people seeking help. It had an impact on people who were using alone. loan. Uh, it had an impact on people who obtained criminal records who were unable to, um, you know, to get uh, employment and other things. And also um, some of the barriers that it caused for people accessing treatment and, and supports, um, you know, so what we, you know, what we have heard uh, loud and clear is that, you know, this is a health approach. It's, it's a, a medical, um, you know, concern and issue of people who are, are misusing drugs and, and to get the experts in there, the doctors, the, you know, the, the supports, the safer supplies to try to help people find pathways. I mean, this since 2016, of course, as you know, I mean, it has been just, um, you know, tragic. The, the number of people that we've lost the overdose crisis here in British Columbia, 9,500 people, uh, since, uh, the health, um, you know, was declared emergency um you know it's just astounding so we had to try something different we had to look for different opportunities to to save lives
1: um yeah uh and um th- there's been some concern raised by advocates that it's not taking effect until january but i, I would assume that if this is uh You know, it's it's going to involve a lack of enforcement that there isn't necessarily going to be that lag. What's your view of that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've, I think first off, it's important to note that this is a, a pretty seismic shift in in policy for, for the government and for British Columbia. And, you know, so we do need time to do it right and to get the infrastructure in place. You know, one thing that from policing perspective, we've been asking for is that, you know, we, we get health uh, stood up properly, that they're going to be prepared to help support people. Uh, if health is going to take this on, um, we're not at a point yet where they're completely positioned and ready to do that, so certainly this will give them time to uh, to build that up. The other thing I can say is, you know, you know, frankly, is we've been de facto decriminalized for quite some time. The Public Prosecution Service of Canada in 2020 in August. Um, actually put forward a directive that they would not be accepting charges for simple possession unless there was extenuating circumstances impacting public health. So, um, that's applied slightly different across the country. But for the most part, um, you know, police officers were not, uh, moving forward with criminal charges for simple possession and they were finding, you know, alternatives. One thing this will change is, is certainly anyone in British Columbia that has 2.5 grams of the drugs or less that you named earlier, um, will not have those drugs seized. And 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 that is probably um, the bigger change that I think will will occur.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Chief Mike Serrett, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Yeah, no, thank you for having me.
1: Okay. Um, again, the numbers to call 416 toll free 1-866-740-4740. What do you think of this decriminalization? Do you have any experience with this? Loved ones, do you think it is a helpful thing? And now let's go to Mark Townsend, who managed Insight, which was North America's first legal supervised consumption site. It opened in 2003 in vancouver's downtown east side and joseph newberger who is a criminal defense lawyer with newberger and partners gentlemen thanks so much for being with us pleasure thanks for having me mark townsend uh, you've been in this space for a very long time so what is your reaction to this
4: well obviously i'm excited i mean it is strange to reflect that uh you know, Insight, which was the first place in North America where you could legally use and possess any drug. And also the transportation of that drug to the site was not illegal. But that happened so long ago, literally so long ago, it's hard for me to remember the date. And uh, since then, four million people have used the site. There's been like millions of dollars spent on research. It doesn't encourage drug use. and You're less likely to die if you use the site. You're less likely to be disruptive in the community. You're not going to be in the parks and the doorways of businesses. But that is a long time. And it, for a decade, stood as the only place like that in the whole of North America. So progress is slow, but in terms of public perception and public progress, it has been, you know, when the chief explains there's been de facto decriminalization for quite some time obviously there are issues with that but he's right there has been de facto communicate there hasn't been prosecution for for quite some time of course there is elements of that but this is kind of it's so long that this is taken and obviously this is a small step in the right direction that part's what's depressing and you have to think of the the, the thousands and thousands of like literally that one site has seen four million injections take place. And then you think have to think of that that's a speck of sand in, in, according to North in, in North America. So just imagine the number of people who've died, the number of families who's been destroyed and all those kind of things together if that makes sense.
1: Uh, Joseph Neuberger, if there has been de facto decriminalization already uh, from a, a legal point of view, is this going to involve any change?
5: Um, yeah, I think it's it's extremely helpful for uh, people who are suffering from addiction uh, that uh, they're not prosecuted. So uh, it was a smart move on behalf of the uh, Department of Justice not to uh, prosecute in British Columbia. I think it's something that should be extended across the country. And and we do see in Ontario that for small amounts of possession, it's it's selective prosecution. So I think that has a major impact on not stigmatizing, in a criminal sense, uh, people who have these addictions. And um, they will be able to possess those drugs because um, just taking it away from them would cause them to seek out other Uh, drugs to supplement. So I think this is a very good move. Um, I think more needs to be done in the sense of looking at uh, drug use in in, in really just the health um, perspective rather than as a criminal perspective. And I think we could see greater moves for decriminalization and maybe even move towards legalization. Because once you start to take the profit out of uh, trafficking for the organized crime uh, groups, um, things change significantly. We've seen that type of shift uh, with respect to marijuana.
1: Mark Townsend, uh, Chief Mike Sarah, who we were just talking to, said he thinks the main actual difference will be the fact that uh, if people are are found to have small amounts, the, the drugs won't be seized.
4: Yeah, that is a positive um, change. I mean, in terms of police officers, they they do confiscate drugs and they also do tread on or smash up the paraphernalia that people are using for that drug. And that means they may use that drug in a more dangerous way. So that is a positive change. Uh, I think what people need to really realize is so much death and destruction, so much money, so much disrespect to the police. The police should have never been anything to do with this. This has never been... Uh, enforcement issue and if you look say in British Columbia you look at 911 calls for police and ambulance you'll see that a vast majority of them relate to the waste of time of chasing people around that for various reasons are using drugs so this would be like chasing around mentally ill people and arresting them for being out on the street if we see drug use for problematic drug use as an issue and that's been the majority of what the police do. The militarization of the police really all relates to this kind of drug demon thing, which goes back you know in history you know it was, it was that for yeah i'm Canada. not
1: sure that's I'm not sure that's the case here mark so uh um just uh that's something we, we would have to check. I can't say that that is the case here no
4: no, but. But I can tell you from my experience on the front line, mainly it's for it's it's to do with people being out on the street, causing disruption, in business doorways, in parks. A lot of time, money is wasted on this. And it shouldn't be. It's kind of, we look back in history and we look at the way that people with mental health were treated. And they were treated, you could go, I'm from England, you could go and see mentally ill people locked up and chuck buns at them. And poke fun at them and poke them. It was like going to the zoo. The way that we have dealt with drug use in North America is pretty appalling. And it's death, destruction, waste, utter waste, you know, the police being in a role where they, you know, have been in charge of it. And it's, it's kind of funny to think, and it's really great to hear the chief speaking the way he did, with his good sense and common sense on these issues. But, it's taken that organization, literally, we had huge issues with that organization, you know, not wanting any of this to happen. They were a big group that was against Insight, against well, allowing people clear, to, use drugs clearly, to come into a safe place.
1: Clearly, that has changed. Joseph Neuberger, uh, in terms of, you know, we also heard the police chief say that this would not affect... Them going after organized crime and trafficking. Uh, do you do you is to those things coexist?
5: Absolutely, yes. So the fact that there's decriminalization and uh, a user will be able to uh, use small amounts and possess uh, will not inhibit in any way our police services across the country uh, to continue investigations to um, seek out and arrest. Uh, those who are involved in in drug trafficking. So it will not impede it. Uh, And it's important that we don't because we also have cooperative agreements with the United States and other countries because trafficking is an international issue. Um, And so we have obligations to cooperate on an international level. So none of this will be interrupted. It just will, you know, out of my depth in this, but I've seen the destruction from uh, this type of drug use that this is a step to treat this as a health issue from the user's standpoint and their perspective and what's happening to them, but not at the more macro level where, where uh, authorities must continue to investigate. Uh, drug trafficking.
1: Mm-hmm. And Joseph, uh, you know, the, the police chief, uh, the chief sir in Vancouver was saying that de facto, this already exists. Uh, so even though Toronto has asked for the same kind of exemption, but is it really going to change anything? I'm assuming if it's de facto there, it's de facto here.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there is definitely a movement here in Ontario um for for decriminalization of these substances and to again focus on the the health issues related to the users and so it's moving along it's it's taking longer here because i think we haven't had the same uh, what i would say horrific numbers of overdose deaths uh, in british columbia but we still have a disproportionate amount of people suffering and dying from overdoses in ontario particularly combined with mental health issues so i think Uh, Our governments have to work quickly, both at the federal and provincial level, to try and achieve the same goal, decriminalization, and then go further and look at how we structure our healthcare system to provide greater assistance that's more mobile and responsive to these individuals, and then see where we go from there. If this works, then what else can we do to try and help these individuals and, and, and maybe get people off of the use of these very... Sort of difficult drugs that cause great, uh, great harm.
1: And and uh, f- a final question: Do you see this as a first step to legalization? And what difference would legalization make?
5: I think we're a long way from legalization because of the nature of of these drugs and the harm that they cause. Particularly with fentanyl and others like that, they're highly deadly. Um, it will be a tough pill for the government to swallow to try Bad and legalize. Pun. <laughs> But, um, pardon the pun, but I do think it's, it's something we have to really study very carefully, uh, and it's happened in other jurisdictions because, you know, crime organizations exist to make a profit, and if we're able to uh, legalize and then regulate and manage and try and help people not access drugs, which are extremely deleterious for them, and, you know, we're sort of taking out the demand for this then the incentive for the criminal organizations significantly go down. Uh, The war on drugs that we've seen over the last several decades has not worked. So we need something more insightful and more nuanced in order to address both the criminal side issue and the health issue. And I think legalization is somewhere we need to look at, study, and carefully move toward.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Joseph Neuberger and Mark Townsend. We appreciate your insights.
5: Pleasure. Take care,
1: we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about money, a big interest rate hike this morning, huge inflation, and also the disproportionate effect on women. Uh, before we go, let me give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 740 And we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. It's the biggest rate hike since the year 2000. The Bank of Canada raised its policy rate by half a percentage point this morning. And it's the third interest rate hike this year. And it brings the benchmark rate to 1.5%, which is just a quarter of a point below the pre-pandemic level. And the idea, of course, is to bring inflation back under control and cool the overheating economy. And it's an economy that hasn't been equally hot for everyone. A new report finds that women face disproportionate economic losses during the pandemic and the recovery compared to men. So what do you think? How are you managing? Inflation hit 6.8%. How are you managing with this? Uh, what about the increase in interest rates? Is that something that's going to be bad for you? Is that something that's going to be good for you? There's always a mix, 416. 3600740, toll free 1 740 4740. And now I'm joined by Catherine Scott, a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Ian Lee, an associate professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure.
6: My pleasure, Libby.
1: Uh, Ian, let's begin with you. Uh, I think this rate hike was widely accepted, uh, and the bank has said they might have to raise interest rates more. So uh, do you think that this is enough to cool inflation, and how do you think it will affect people?
6: Um, It's probably not enough uh, yet to cool inflation. Full disclosure, I lived through the 70s. Um, As a young man, I was uh, in the Bank of (laughs) Montreal as a lender and uh, I lent money and I saw the inflation go from four to six to seven to eight to nine. It peaked at 14% inflation and interest rates peaked at 20%. And, uh, and, and it did take inflation out of the system. It also caused uh, the deepest recession since the great depression, but it did, it did fix the problem. So to your question, um, I've been critical of the bank of Canada, uh, and I do fully respect Tiff Macklem. I've met him professionally in downtown Ottawa at events. Um, but um, And I'm not advocating, I'm not going to get into the debate. I'm not advocating he'd be, re- he be replaced, I assure you. Uh, but I do think it's still legitimate to criticize them. I think that they, uh, they waited too long. I wished that what they said and did today had been done a year ago. Inflation and the genie was getting out of the bottle last April, May, June in 2021. We saw it. The numbers were there. But the Central Bank and also, not to be fair to the Central Bank of Canada, the Bank of England was making the same comments. So was the Federal Reserve saying, ah, temporary. Don't get your knickers in a knot. Problem's going to go away. It's going to fix itself. And it's going we don't have to do anything. Now they're acknowledging that they made a mistake. Um, the governor of the Bank of Canada said so. The Federal Reserve has said so. So um, yes. Now, quick, very quickly, to your question, will it hurt? Yes, it will. I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all or tell people it's benign and it's not going to affect anybody. It will affect borrowers, to state the obvious. Um, for those who are savers, who are net savers with money in the bank account and buying GICs, they'll make more money because the deposit rates will go up. But for those who have floating rate loans, HELOCs, and variable rate mortgages, their payment is going to go up. But last comment, very quickly Libby, for anyone who thinks that, well, let's kick the problem down the road and maybe it will go away, we learned from the 70s that when you don't confront the inflation and you kick it down the road, it does not make the problem get better, it makes the problem worse and requires even worse or greater intervention later. And that's why we did at that point in that time go to 20%. I'm not suggesting we're going there this time. I don't think it's that bad. But procrastinating and refusing to confront the problem doesn't solve the problem.
1: Catherine Scott, where do women stand in all of this? Uh, You have a report showing that women were disproportionately hit during the pandemic. Uh, We're on the way out of the pandemic now. So where do they stand uh thanks very much for the
7: question and to comment on uh the conversation today obviously Bank of Canada that um has uh increased rates uh um and uh, that will certainly have a large impact on on um on families of all types I guess what I would like to say about that and certainly my report found that it, we know for uh, for certain that low-income families will be most largely impacted. They're the ones dealing with the rising cost most acutely, dealing with the rising cost of living, particularly food. Obviously, shelter costs have been um, going through the roof. Um, the raising interest rates, of course, is a pretty blunt policy tool. The Bank of Canada is walking a pretty fine tightrope here, very conscious of the fact. Certainly, um, Professor Lee alluded to this, that uh, you know, not wanting to take precipitous action to trigger a recession. Uh, those are also rumors in the wind, you know, triggering high levels of unemployment. We can you know, referring back to the deep recession. So it's a fine line to walk. Um, the in- heightened interest rates will certainly potentially cool the housing market. It's not going to do a lot around the global sources of inflation right now, such as the war in Ukraine, food supplies, continuing bottlenecks, troubles in China. When we look at, like, the things that governments can do to deal with economic uncertainty, you know, certainly interest rates are a key tool, but, you know, uh, just to say, this is a, you know, we can look at the back in the rearview mirror, but I think we need to focus on the concerns right now. What are the, you know, struggles of low-income families? And my report highlights the disproportionate number of women who obviously face economic uncertainty right now. Yeah, but
1: what my question is, we know that women were in sectors that were really hard hit, were shut down during the pandemic. But right now, those very same sectors, well, there's huge labor shortages
7: yeah, we've just started to see. So when my report looked at the last two years, and certainly women were on an economic roller coaster, precisely because of their high representation in sectors that were really um, hard hit, and uh, like food and accommodation, personal services, and the like. They experienced successions of closures, and you know, winding up again only to close. Also, of course, had were hit by increased care responsibilities. Often scaling back employment opportunities or income in like in order to take care of kids or people, folks with illnesses at home. So that was really huge. And of course, the whole other group of workers, I mean, obviously on the front lines, those folks in the care economy who saw us through this pandemic and, you know, through and certainly something else my uh, report highlighted, you know, um, at rates of pay that let, you know, clearly lagged inflation have done for a long time, even going in. Things are starting to change. We've got a couple of months of data looking at obviously the vacancy rates you pointed to. We're starting this past month to see some uh, wages starting to increase for new hires in particular. But you know, certainly um, all, by and large, we also you know we're talking about millions of women in different uh, large in care economy occupations and the like their wages haven't started to move. So we'll have to see. As I said, my primary concerns certainly are with low-wage workers, how they're doing right now, what the, you know, their, the economic uncertainty they face, dealing with you know pretty tenuous situation
1: with rising cost of living. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Lee, uh, what's your take on that, uh, and will this interest rate hike have any kind of impact? I mean, I, I'm hearing from all kinds of businesses, they just can't find people to work.
6: Um, these are fascinating questions, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I want to put forward a, a sort of a, a counterfactual that may seem um, a little bit odd. Um, if we talk about low-income, and by, by the way, there's no question we have low-income people, and, and StatsCan chops up the population, divides everyone up into quintiles. And the way I teach it in my class is the bottom quintile, the bottom 20% of Canadians measured by their a- annual income, are what we call The poor. And, and the top quintile are what we call the wealthy. And the second bottom quintile is what we call the lower middle class or the working class. So in terms of interest rates, the paradox is I don't think that interest rates are going to hurt people in the bottom quintile that much because if you look at the data as I have on home ownership, people in the bottom quintile simply don't have the income or the resources to be homeowners. And uh, so they're, they're a very, uh, very aggressively affected or negatively affected, I should say, by inflation. And so the inflation is going to hurt people: it's people that borrow money, people in the lower middle class, people in the middle class, uh, because their mortgage payments will go up, or their HELOC payments, or their car loans will go up. But I, I think, in the if you look at this and stepping back to medium term and saying, okay, will this bring inflation back down? In one or two or three years, I think it will. Certainly the Bank of Canada believes that. And that will be net beneficial to people in the, the bottom who are the lowest income people in Canadian society. So I don't want to leave the idea that interest rates going up are only a negative story and that there is nobody that's going to benefit from this, even though it is painful in the short, medium term.
1: Uh, It's also those interest rates going up uh, is going to be good for uh, older people who uh, are relying on their savings, their retirement savings. You're right. And can I
6: just mention one more thing in response to these very important conversations about the lower wages of uh, uh, women and marginal and people that are marginalized? I don't dispute that at all. The data is crystal clear. But I want to point something out. Uh, There's a remarkable book out by, he's 80 years old, and he was at the Bank of England for many years, then he went to LSE. And he's written a remarkable book called The Great Demographic Reversal. And it's about the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. He argues the labor shortages that you just mentioned a moment ago are going to have a very interesting effect, he argues. He argues that we've had inequality and uh, declining wages for many people for the last 30 years, because there was a huge influx of workers into the global economy, China entering the global economy in 1993, collapse of the Soviet Union, and of course, women entering the workforce in very in unprecedented levels, their participation rates gone through the roof, he argues going forward. That's not going to happen again. There's no new China waiting to join. There's no new Soviet Union that's going to join the global economy. And women, female participation rates are approaching male participation rates. Thus and therefore, he argues, we're going to have shortages as far as, as the eye can see. And this is going to push up, he argues, wages across the board for everybody and is going to start to reduce the inequalities that we've experienced
2: in the last thirty years,
1: Karen um, Catherine. Uh, yes. I, I'm. It seems to me that the women who are disadvantaged in the pandemic now uh, are in a better position to name their price for those very types of jobs. Yeah. No. I'm the
7: the hope, and we would hope certainly, and like Kara, Connie, John. this is a situation where we might well we'll hopefully see. Um, Increases in wages um, across a range of occupations, um, certainly an important necessary, I mean, average wages have um, lagged inflation or has been relatively low certainly for upwards of a decade now. We have new information from earlier this week, certainly on the share of labor in the economy and uh, part, portion of GDP, and again, has been clearly much lower, certainly than profit, as another uh, key driver of current inflation is the amount of profit ex- um, excised from the economy by large um, corporations and the like. But uh, I do hope the situation that uh, where people are able to mobilize and ask and command higher wages, you know, there's some factors pushing against that, for instance, one of the responses from um, uh, some of the provinces right now are looking to um, expand the number of temporary foreign workers in the care economy, bringing them into long-term care homes and the like, in order to not step deliberately to address some of the vacancies you've you've mentioned. But, I mean, of course, that's a move that will necessarily attempt to keep wages low. And I think what we've really found through the pandemic, certainly the evidence is crystal clear that the you know quality of care, working conditions in in hospitals, long term care, our child care centers, intricately connected with the, the treatment of uh, workers in those same play, in those same um, locations, and that we really have to make an effort to improve the working conditions and wages of women in these um, key areas of the economy.
1: Ian Lee, uh, in terms of people who are all or partially retired and living on their savings, it's it's that balance between the rate of inflation, I guess, and and the interest rates. What's your outlook for them?
6: Um, this may sound again a little bit bizarre, but I'm not as worried, and I'll explain why. The um, the well, when you look at the stats, can break down by H cohorts. The wealthiest. Age cohort in Canadian society are people over sixty-five. I'm one of them. Um, uh, you know, if you look at average net worth. Um, the the group with the largest average net worth is our seniors, uh, because of course they've been building up their assets over their lifetime. They've been paying down their debt. I fully acknowledge that there is uh, elder poverty, but then you look at the uh, the stats on this from StatsCan. And elder poverty has been collapsing for literally 30, 40 years and you compare it to the OECD average and we're in the bottom third of the high income wealthy countries. Not to trivialize it, not to suggest there isn't more we can do for the seven or eight percent of uh, people who are overwhelmingly female, by the way, below the poverty line. So there's still things we can do on a targeted basis for that, that small number, that seven or eight percent. But overall, Seniors are much better off than, than our young people. Young people have much greater problems today than our seniors.
7: Hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I, as comparison in terms of working-age folks and access to resources, um, the other thing certainly is a really important factor is the, uh, our income security programs and those that are indexed to inflation and those that aren't folks um, on social assistance; those are not indexed. They're the ones struggling with the highest costs at the grocery store and shelter. On fixed incomes, really fixed incomes, and they've actually experienced real cuts in income, you know, for decades now. Well, um, when, whereas our, yeah.
1: When you talk about net worth, a lot of that are people's homes, and we know that uh, you know boomers who bought their homes, uh, they've really appreciated. But the bottom line is, you have to live somewhere. If you sell, you've got to buy or something.
6: You've raised a very good point, point, but um, and this is something I've been studying for years, partly because I was once a mortgage manager and partly because I'm a homeowner and partly because I have friends who are in the situation you just described. And what's been happening, and I'm not talking just now the last 12 to 18 months with the uh, phenomenal run up because of COVID, but in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a very pronounced trend of people downsizing. The word is there in the English language. We know it. And so they downsized from the four or five-bedroom house, three-bedroom house in the Burbs, they sell it for a huge capital gain, which of course is, if it's your principal residence, it's tax free. And then they move to smaller, either condos in the city, or increasingly they're moving out to smaller towns outside the core where the property values have been lower. I didn't say they're cheap, but they're moving out to small towns a half an hour outside of Ottawa or an hour and a half outside of Toronto, that sort of phenomenon. And, and so the, what I'm, I argued in a paper I did, that this is the fourth pillar of pensions that people don't recognize, that, that people look at their home as a supplement to their pensionable income. They're taking, and I have friends that have done this, they say, I'll sell my house for a million, buy a smaller property out of the city for a half a million, I pocket the extra money, and that subsidizes myself in retirement. This but- phenomenon is occurring.
1: Well, yeah, that. yeah, there, if you want to stay in the city, condos aren't that cheap. No, We're out of true. time, mm-hmm. and we, we, this is a, a good subject for a debate at another time. In the meantime, thank you so much, Catherine Scott and Ian Lee. Thanks very much. And, and that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.